I'm Billy. I'm Drew. This is Pilot Club. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome back. Welcome got, back, everyone. Got the tripod set up. Yep. Tripods on, blue lights on. We're, we're ready to go. It's funny. We've been doing this for over two years now. I know. And I still can't get my head around the tripods for these <laughs> cameras. I, 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 know, I know we talk about it yeah. a lot, but yeah. it is at, a thing. At some point, you'll be tangled up in that cord. You'll and knock that tripod over. The thing is because I have limited... like whatever. Spatial cognition. Well, we know that's not true. <laughs> we know that if, if we're anywhere and we've got to find our way somewhere else, I'm your guy. No, we, we know that's not true. But in terms of like the uh, garage, garage band, you know. Ah, un, like technical know-how. Exactly. Like yeah. when you knock the headphone over, the, the microphone over, you've got to plug it back in and yeah. start the podcast. It's a delicate it. system. Yeah, it's, I mean. It's a very delicate ecosystem there. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to take it. Andrew does <laughs> none of the garage band can't stuff. Can't tinker with it at all. Andrew, Andrew rocks up. The microphones are set up. The computer's set up. He just sits down. I blow I like upload a, like it like a real rock star. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, um, let's get on to speaking of people who blow in unexpectedly. Oh, Regis Patov. Yep, exactly. In the consultant. <laughs> let's get on to the consultant. Yeah, so the consultant. It's funny, when you said Regis Patov, I thought you were referring to some piece of legal terminology or something, so I pretended to understand. Oh, am I? Yeah, well, I don't know. Because what does Regis Patov stand for? I've got no idea. Have you seen the pilot? Yeah, I have. It's a character in the pilot, right? Yes, but you know where his name's taken from? It's also taken from a company, right? No, it's taken from uh, a box. Uh, oh. The box is register of the uh, US patent. I thought, th- but I, US I thought patent. that box belonged to his family business. Yeah, but registered US patent. It is a legal term. Ah, okay, well, ah. I watched little, this little one. A on the uptake there, man. I watched <laughs> this one pretty late at night. I was You're losing your edge a bit. I was thinking of higher things. I was thinking of high, higher concepts, these these petty details of plot narrative. Oh, that was that was a big twist. I know. Spoiler alert. Yeah, wow. Uh, yeah, so the I'm consultant. Like, did, did I understand anything about this pilot now? Yikes. Uh, the consultant, it's an American black comedy, uh, thriller, black comedy thriller series. Uh, it is currently on Prime. And it's created by Tony Bazgallop. Ah. Or Bazgallop. Mm. Did you, that name, does it ring a bell, Billy? Oh, many bells. <laughs> so <laughs> many bells. Creator of uh, Servant. Yeah. Oh, Servant. okay. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's actually based on a novel by Bentley Little of the same name, mm. which I assume you've read many times. <laughs> and uh, it stars Christoph Waltz as the... the don't, teach- don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do Chris. Andrew has never said Christoph Waltz in his life ever before. The W is a V. Yep. In Austria. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's, he plays the teach, the titular uh, consultant. And uh, it is co-starring Nat Wolf, uh, Brittany O'Grady and Amy Carrero. Now, what happens in The Consultant? Well, it takes place in the walls of a mobile gaming company. Mm-hmm. And its enigmatic leader is found dead in very mysterious circumstances at the opening of this pilot. Mm. Now, we only have limited information about mm. this, but we, we suspect that one of the young children uh, in a group that was touring the, the, the game uh, killed him. Mm. And uh, So it starts, with, it starts with a school visit, right? Yes, and the, it starts the, with the a school visit. The kids are ushered around the gaming company and they go into the CEO's room. And then there's a gunshot. And, and the gunshot rings out and all we see is the child He's holding the, the, the weapon. And he only kills the CEO? That's right. Fires well, a couple of times. Well, it's a bit ambiguous, it isn't is it? It is ambiguous. There's a lot ambiguous else. about this, yeah. about this pilot. Uh, and, he's hold, and he's holding the, the gun when the, when the uh, co-leads walk in and says, the devil made me do it. Mm. So a very, very uh, you know, complicated, enigmatic opening. Mm. Soon after, the, the head of this particular uh, company is, is one of sort of a a renegade solo operative. So doesn't really have a succession plan. And instead, in the wake of his tragic 
passing, a mysterious consultant comes mm. in by the name of Regis Patoff, mm. played by Christoph Waltz, whose motives, whose methods are very obscure. But kind of implied by the, the, the meaning of his name in a way, wouldn't you say? <laughs> kind of implied by... Yeah, mm. yeah. So, you know, obviously, obviously there's, there's, something, there's something shadowy going on in this series. So, what did you think of The Consultant? So I thought this was really interesting. Like, to me, this was kind of like the work equivalent of a home invasion drama. Ooh. So it's like a work invasion drama. I mean, my, my sense was that... And look, I don't work in the kind of corporate sphere, but my mm. sense is in the world of corporate business, more and more consulting, management consulting, is becoming, if not the dominant industry, the most powerful industry. Mm. And the roles that were once played in businesses or corporations by employers are increasingly played by consultants coming in and acting in lieu of employers or acting mm. in. So it, it feels like the show is about management consulting as a kind of arcane practice, right? Mm. So mm. all of a sudden the CEO dies and this old model of business goes out the window where you've got a CEO, you've got a traditional boss and this new kind of power or professional source of professional power comes into the workplace and it's a really different kind of power like it's very arcane it's very cryptic it's very ritualistic so Mm. the christoph waltz character has all these really odd rituals he goes through so for example there's a character who's just not even a character just a you know a person we never see them outside of this encounter but there's an employer employee whose deodorant he doesn't like or whose Mm. smell he doesn't like so Mm. he to, to figure out which employee is giving off the odour, he sniffs every employee in turn <laughs> and then makes the employee with the offending deodorant like scrub himself, strip down and scrub himself in his office. So, yeah, there's almost this sense of this shift in power from that traditional workplace structure, the traditional boss, to the management consultant. And, the, and it captures something almost perverse about the management consultant. So it's almost like he, the fact that... The, the, it's like the management consultant has this commitment to the company as a kind of ideal or a fantasy that goes above and beyond the boss or the employees or the company itself Mm. so it's almost like the fact that the ceo has died just makes the management consultant all the more fixated on fulfilling the ceo's vision Mm. and the management consultant has absolutely no investment in the employees of the corporate Mm. it's almost like the management remind me you know that ai thing that the paperclip problem Mm. we talked about this so for those who haven't heard it there's this ai thought experiment called the paperclip problem which basically it's about the way in which ais might perform commands without any kind of regard to human life or human interest. And the thought experiment is you tell an AI to make paper clips in the most efficient way and the risk is it'll, it'll kill all humankind and use the whole planet just as one giant paper clip making factory. Like, Christoph Waltz is like that in this with respect to the company. Like, it's almost like he's prepared to do anything for the company, including destroying what the company stands for. Mm. So, And it's like the kind of mystery of the show is when did this transition between a traditional CEO and a management consultant happen? And a lot of, although the episode is pretty oblique generally, a lot of it seems is about already trying to map that 24-hour span between when the CEO died and the management consultant arrived. Mm. So just, just I'm, I'm surprised, like, just because this... I was reading a really interesting article recently on The Atlantic about the rise of, say, McKinsey and these, the way in which these management consultant companies 
basically change what business was in mm. the 70s and 80s and you know culminating with the corporate landscape now and i'm surprised there haven't been more shows like this which present the consultant as a kind of almost a cult figure mm. Mm. That, that seems like what this you, is going you might for say doesn't it? like uh I'm not sure whether you said cult or occult. Occult, I thought I said yeah, occult. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. But, but also I think either, either of those, yeah, are, are certainly valid. There's the, the closest I've seen is a sitcom called Corporate. Have you seen oh, okay. It's no. like it's like this workplace sitcom. I guess it's kind of post office. It's it's like it's really dark, really anarchic, and kind of nihilistic comedy. And it's so dark that it's almost like dystopian rather than funny. But mm. this this felt like that. Like this felt like trying to capture that world in which the heart and soul of businesses are now outsourced to these kind of occult consulting mm. firms. And there's mm. a, that, that's why I said it feels like a kind of work invasion yeah. drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I that think was my sense of it. Yeah, you can definitely see the parallels there mm. with the, the servant as well, obviously. Yeah. In servant, we have the, the babysitter coming in yeah. who comes from this, uh, you know, slightly you know, disturbed quality. She has that talismanic quality in the same way that this guy... This, uh, you know, Christoph Waltz's character has. That's a really, yeah. a really, that's a really interesting comparison because yeah. it is, it's the same thing domestically and professionally, happening in these two series, mm. isn't it? Mm. A for, sort of mm. foreign object mm. entering into the, the body of this, you know, pretty familiar American institution. Mm. In this case, the corporation. Um, and it has. Remember, we watched when we were starting the podcast. Those who haven't heard the backstory, it came out of. Me and Andrew, my partner Kyle, like watching pilots during lockdown and talking about it. And a lot of the early part of the podcast happened, you know, at the very end of the kind of first deep lockdown. So we've both said we'll always associate Servant with lockdown. Yeah. But this show has that similar kind of sequestered feel, doesn't it? Like it it's does. not set during lockdown, but it's got that same claustrophobia. Yeah. There's no yeah. sense of an outside world. No, you, outside you barely the leave the office. Yeah. Uh, that's there's, true. There's. there's a lot more questions than answers mm. in this, and obviously, you know, M. Night Shyamalan was drawn to the the servant, mm. the servant narrative, and mm. you can understand that because he's a he's a director who loves asking questions and then mm. is a bit ham fisted in answering them. Mm. Um, this is certainly a pilot where there's there are so many enigmas here. There's mm. the the mysterious uh, passing of the CEO, mm. the mysterious origins, mm. the mysterious succession plan that was yep. laid out in the twenty four hours. Yep. Um, that these two uh, came into mm. uh, contact with each other, mm. the the motives of the supporting characters. What are they? What do they want? What are their roles? And, um, and you're right. It's not mapping that window between the CEO and the consultant isn't just about real time and space either. There's almost a sense that the consultant has somehow absorbed the power of the CEO. There's some. Do you know mm, what I mean? Like there's some mm. kind of almost supernatural connection. Yeah. I feel like this is a show that. It also really stands or falls on the actor who plays the consultant. Yes, and you could not ask for a, a more perfect fit than Christoph Waltz. Yeah, like yeah, he's he's great at delivering dialogue. Uh, he's great at you know disquisition. Yeah, and and and, and a kind of officious, pompous, bureaucratic sadism. Yes, he's yeah, good that's at, like, right. Figures in control who are kind of slightly. But I also kind of feel like. Having seen him in a lot of, you know, high, you know, he became famous in the English-speaking world through like kind of high-concept films like Django and Inglorious Bastards, and he's had cameos over the years. There have there have been times I just want to see him do shtick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I just want some Christoph Waltz shtick. Yeah. And like, he got that little bit in Bond, in mm. James Bond. But I think this this could become inane in a really fun way as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, I I suppose 
one of my main reservations about this pilot is there's certain pilots that that just don't really tell you anything about what's happening yep or what's going to happen mm. it's just one mystery wrapped in a riddle wrapped in an yep. enigma and it's so enigmatic that there's almost nothing to hold on to. It's, it's very hard to tell what the series will be. Like, exactly. And part of what I was what trying genre to... it is even because it's it's framed here as a as a as a black comedy, but it's not really funny. No, and that may as what I was trying to say with Christoph Waltz. Like at the moment, he plays a very suspenseful kind of sadistic character, but you can see it shifting another way where it almost just becomes pure camp. Yeah. So it's it's hard to know how he will play it. It's certainly an odd offbeat pilot here, mm. which is unclassifiable. It's like, like an anti-pilot. Yeah, um, in terms of genre. Mm. Um, look, I thought it was quite entertaining. I wasn't really connecting that much with the supporting characters. And the the denouement of this, of this, uh, <laughs> of this pilot is... It's truly, truly bizarre. Yep. I don't know about you. How did you react to the the bombshell? I mean, we, you missed the Regis Padoff bombshell, but which, <laughs> the which, final bombshell was pretty unmissable. Oh, yeah, The security yeah. camera yep. footage. Yep, so that's... <laughs> that's pre- but, so, but again... That's a, that's, a, that's a bit of a hateful eight type yeah, revelation so there. <laughs> without being too too explicit about it, like the, the security footage depicts a moment between the CEO and the consultant, which again... You could read as something quite banal, what's happening with them, but it, it, it is also like the consultant kind of absorbing the life force of the CEO. Mm. Like it's, mm. there's something ritualistic yeah. about what happens between the two of them. We're not going to give it away. That, again, suggests this, there's something arcane going on. Like there's some kind of... It's almost like that shift from the... Yeah, that shift from this older professional power to a newer consulting power... It's like it depends upon these dark rituals and dark pacts that mm. you normally take place behind the scenes, mm. but that are now in broad daylight. And there's a bit during this encounter where the Christoph Waltz character looks at the camera as if almost to challenge the other employees to reverse the shift yeah. or to do anything about it. So I just wonder, like, it's, it's interesting. Like, in, in terms of the comedy stuff too, like, I mean, I know people who've worked in consulting environments and they've told me stuff, advice they've given. And sometimes it sounds really insightful. Sometimes it sounds pretty banal. Mm. So you can see this, yeah, and they they admit it's banal. So that you can see this becoming almost like a parody, just a straight parody. Mm. At the end, and you could read that final scene in that way too. So it's it's certainly weird. Like mm. it's, it's it's definitely it's un- offbeat. It's disarming. It's unsettling. Um, I think I am an in. Like I'm I'm curious. I mean, I I just find Christoph Waltz so watchable. Mm. And so seen, like, he can just choose scenery so well. Mm. I kind of like him in this role, but I also understand that it is, it is a pilot that gives almost no sense. Mm. And I've read, I've read a little bit around it that the series is very twisty. Okay. And that, so maybe each episode is like this, where each episode just resets your perceptions in some way. I suppose Servant was like that. Yeah. There There were a lot of alternatives, you know, um, you know, double blinds, yep. fake outs, yep. you know, narrative gymnastics in mm. that. Uh, I thought that was grounded in a, in a an interesting, realistic yep. world with charismatic leads in yep. the way that this is not. No, and I, I agree. I don't think this is at that certain level. And you're right, like outside of the consultant himself, like everyone else is just reacting to Christoph Waltz. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it is everyone just he, as his audience, his captive audience. Um yeah, so look, I, I, I'm on the fence too, but I, I mean, I'm certainly intrigued by it, and I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, I'm, look, I, I respect it, but I'm probably leaning towards an out for this one. Okay, I'm 
I'm an in. I'm a curious in. Okay, on to our second show for this week. It's mm. an Apple TV Plus show. Yeah. Um, it's called Hello Tomorrow. So it's created by Amit Bala and Lucas Jansen. Mm. And it's basically a retro-futurist drama. Yeah. So it's set in the 50s. It's got a really lush 50s palette and 50s atmosphere. It's about a, a group of travelling salesmen in the 50s and saleswomen. All of this is something that could be completely out of a naturalistic drama. The catch is that the travelling salesmen are all selling timeshares on the moon. Mm. And even mm. that is not... It's almost like in the 50s, that was retro-futurist. So in the, in the 50s, that would have felt like a plausible future. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it's, like, it's like an alternative future yes. or an alternative futuristic vision. Um, main cast is uh, Billy Crudup, who plays... Crudup or Crudup? Ooh, I'm, I'm Basinger, Basinger, Basinger. <laughs> I've that, that's one name I've never heard spoken aloud, like by someone on TV or something. Yeah. Is it Billy Crudup yeah. or Crudup? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. It's, it's an unfortunate last name, that's for sure. It's not, yeah. But I know he played a big role in the um, that the other Apple series that was... Oh, Morning Wars. Morning Wars, yeah. and I know he won a, uh, an Emmy for it. So it's a bit of a crud innocence. I know, exactly, the crud innocence, <laughs> exactly. And it's funny you mention, <laughs> funny you mention um, Morning Wars, because his character here feels almost completely continuous with mm. Morning Wars. So mm. in Morning Wars, he, he basically plays a hustler. Like mm. he works for a top in news program, but his whole character lies in brokering deals between people. Mm. And this mm. is like a milder version mm. of the same character. It's interesting how Apple seems to be assembling this ensemble of actors, yeah, almost yeah. like a like a, a director. It's yeah. like this Apple vision. The or... Apple Cinematic Universe. <laughs> yeah. Apple Cinematic Universe. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Because it's definitely an echo of it, isn't there, yeah. of that show. Yeah. Um, and, he, and the other main top build actor is Hank Azaria who plays another salesman mm. um, so the series yeah it is true there is that echo the series it's got that kind of it feels like something that has been really kind of fetishised in the last you know, 10 years of that 50s sense of tomorrow mm. and of what tomorrow would look like mm. so Nash as well with the Apple TV plus house style doesn't it absolutely lush. high def <laughs> high def yeah and it's right. funny watching this took me back to you know when I was a kid I used to love reading through books about what the future might look like, mm. and especially books which focused on how the future would look if we colonised other planets or colonised under the sea or mm. you know had houses in the air. And just that kind of dome aesthetic, yeah. like that fifties dome aesthetic. <laughs> yeah. like ba- the idea, like they're basically wherever you go, yeah. humans can live as long as you're under a dome. Yes. So <laughs> two examples I was obsessed with, like I love I love Where's Wally, and the second Where's Wally book, Where's Wally now. You know, the first Where's Wally book is just like everyday spaces. Yeah. But the second book is historical spaces. Ah. Um, and in one of them, Wally's in the future. And the future is basically people living on, on the moon under domes. Uh, yes. The other example yes. is I was obsessed with SimCity 2000. Ah, yes. And in SimCity 2000, if you got enough money and revenue, you could build these things called arcologies, which were just kind of giant domed mini cities. So oh, right. that, okay. that dome aesthetic, you know, we can, yeah. humans can go anywhere as long <laughs> as there's a dome. Yeah. I mean, I guess WandaVision is that same yeah. under the the dome like yeah, yeah. WandaVision under the yeah. dome well, like, I love I, I love all those experiments with dome living dome living biodome yeah exactly or biosphere but they were all under domes yeah exactly um, there's something definitely compelling about it and they're met nicely paired against that those 50s chrome like cars and the sleek lines and and what you said about the Apple TV aesthetic too I mean the Apple like it feels like the Apple TV aesthetic has taken that Netflix glassiness and upped it yes put it up a notch so yes. the glassiness of Apple TV plus along with the dome aesthetic. Yes. It works really well. Yes, yeah. yes. You always think the Apple TV aesthetic is almost like we're creating TV so that we can sell our 
our commercial television yeah, exactly. the highest definition the best quality. It looks like. Exactly. It's yeah. Exactly. It's, it's, they feel the technological innovation and the narrative innovation feel like they're paired yeah. in the Apple TV or, aesthetic. Or or it's kind of allegorizing mm. the Apple TV aesthetic. So mm. and that works nicely here. So in this version of the future so it's a retro futurist vision. And it's kind of elegantly done up to a point. So everything in the fifties is normal mm. except everything is a little more buoyant. Mm. So the main technologies seem to be just to let things hover above the ground a little bit more. Yep. So everything is basically hovering. Tables hover, cars hover, mailboxes hover. People seem to have jetpacks to get around, but you don't see a lot of that. So everything is just slightly mm. lighter than air, mm. which again is that Apple aesthetic, right? Like yeah. the kind of sense of floating in a kind of liquid, curved, smooth, streamlined space. So that... That part of it's really beautiful. Like it's like, what if mm. what if what if it was the fifties, but everybody was just a couple of centimeters off the ground? Yeah. And so moving to the moon makes a lot of sense because everything is slightly aerial anyway. I was a bit disappointed though that and look, I know it's just a pilot. I was a bit disappointed though that we didn't hear more about the moon. So what I would have liked from it is, and look, it's just a pilot, so I get that. But I wanted to hear more about. The communities on the moon, the topography of the moon, well, like did they exist, or, or even if they exist at all, exactly. Mm. So it's implied at the end they don't exist. Mm. But even then, I wanted to hear more about that side of things, more about the logistics mm. of, because I, I love moon domestication narrative. So we've mm. talked a lot about how how great say Ad Astra is. Yeah, where you yeah. Have, those are the best scenes in Ad Astra. Yeah, moon scenes for sure. Incredible scenes. Yeah, the James Gray film Ad Astra, mm. where there's. Basically, you can imagine how an airport might look on the moon with like Subway mm, and mm. Maccas. I did love the way the moon was was shot here. Yeah, me too. This giant full moon felt like it was Luminous. enlarged mm. two or three times. So it, it's it's promise, mm. and it's you know it, it was almost like a character in and of itself I agree. that people were interacting with. Yeah, yeah. You know, staring up longingly at you know looking at the different sides mm. of it. That mm. there was there were talking there was talk about the different. That's true. You know, Maybe the bright I'm... side, the dark side. They had. There was great uh, description of the uh, specific the locations within the yeah. sea of tranquility, yep. the texture and the. Maybe I wanted yeah. just wanted more, but yeah. Mm. But you're right that it does it does really capture how, in the fifties, the romanticism the moon must have had in the fifties just mm. to people generally. Mm. So, yeah, the the fact of the space race, the fact of people mm. being on the moon, mm. you must have looked up at the moon in the fifties mm. with, I don't know both a greater sense of its proximity and its yeah. domesticability true, true. but also a greater sense of its distance and its vastness true, so true it makes you the luminosity of the moon here yeah. i think really you know mentally foregrounds how much of a preoccupation it was at the time mm. and how much today we just stare at it you like, never look we stare at past it. it yeah exactly it's just there mm. it's very rarely an object of fascination and fetishization mm. that it was in that era and i guess it's a time right where you know now there's so much exploration further into the solar system, but it's a time when the moon was such a tangible threshold of the unknown. Mm. Like what you... Yeah, I, it's interesting. I just, as a sidebar too, it's, I remember like like when you know, I'm a big Bob Dylan fan, like when Bob Dylan went through his Christian music phase in the late 70s, I'm pretty sure that some of his tracks reference Christian conspiracies that there was no moon landing or that, or that, there, or that the moon landing didn't matter or that we shouldn't be landing on the moon. So mm. it's like even people who are against the moon landing it was still a preoccupation. Mm. And it's funny these days too, isn't it? Like stuff like the the moon landing conspiracies, part of it's, in terms of conspiracies go, part of me is like, well, why would they bother 
who cares about that conspiracy? Mm. But at the time, so yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. I'm I'm wrong about that. Like the moon is beautifully etched. Mm. Maybe I was just curious. Maybe I just wanted more about yeah. the logistics of it. I think what's interesting as well here is the way these colonies on the moon are figured mm. as suburban colonies. Yes, that's I love yes. that. Yes, I and, love that. And this is partly a show about you know the great you know exurban migration. Yep. In the 1950s, yep. that desire to create a utopian community mm-hmm. out from a new, yep. you know, outside the main population yep. centres, and you know, the visions of the moon, the way that the moon is sold to these people is as if it's a timeshare yep. in Florida. Yep. You know, it's a it's a gated community or a domed mm. community with you know great amenities, a great garden, mm. uh, you know, uh, sporting facilities mm. and so forth. So it's a suburban dream. I love that. So the, moon, the moon's like a kind of an allegory for suburbia. I think so. Uh, I love that. That's I think great. so, yeah. So we see characters and we, we don't really have any big urban centres here. So they, the, the salespeople in there are going from one small town to another mm. and each of these small towns have that same 50s chrome aesthetic. They're mm. almost proto-moon sites as mm. well. Mm. So they've... So they've um, and even when they're travelling because they're hovering above the highway and the moon's so foreground, it feels like they're already travelling mm. um, interplanetary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, wonderful. Through interpla- interplanetary means. So there's this a, a beautiful beguiling quality mm. to this pilot. It's like I, they're already on the moon in spirit. Exactly, mm. exactly. So I think all the 50s sales pattern and, and all that is very, is very quaint and very, very comforting. And I think this is actually a pilot that works really effectively as a, as a short film. I agree. That's a nice way to look at as it. As a three-act short film. That's a nice way to look at it. This actually has a very, quite a beautiful little mm. resolution. Mm. Um, and I think that's actually, that's the greatest strength of this pilot. And this is actually, I think, you know, quite, you know, uh, counterpointed to our, our first show mm. where the pilot revealed nothing. Mm. This pilot reveals so much, it, can, it almost operates as a self-contained short film, which can also be a negative because mm. is there a compelling need to continue watching or has this pilot, mm. is this just a self-contained statement? It's Should funny, this be a film? Funny to say it that way makes me like it more because you're right, the ending, the ending beautifully leaves open whether or not the moon is just a fantasy. Mm. And that, that fits in nicely with that connection to suburbia too because it's almost like suburbia here is like, yeah, it's like it's like a fantasy that people are simultaneously already in, but kind of can't quite realise either. Mm. It's like it's like that suburban dream is like the moon. It's always just there mm. in your con, you know, just at the edge of your consciousness, but you can never quite hold on to it. Yeah, that's right. And I think there there is a nice little arc. This this pilot has a really nice mm. narrative arc. So there's a reconciliation narrative. There's you know a friendship narrative. There's mm. a there's there's just there's great world building here. Mm. Um, but again, where's this going to go? How is this going to sustain itself over a season or several seasons? It's quite perplexing. It's almost, yeah, it's almost like the best way to do it in terms of what you said about it would be for each, each episode to be kind of self-contained or each, yeah. you'd like to, to make it radically episodic yeah. rather than the continuous narrative. Yeah. It, what, what, I don't even understand what genre it is. No. Is it drama? Is it comedy? Is mm. it... Is it is it a sitcom? Is it going to be? Is there going to be an ongoing, mm. you know, compelling narrative arc? Is mm. it science fiction? It's and so it's, much of it is, as you said, about that beguiling kind of languid quality. It's hard to maintain that in an episodic mm, way as mm, well. Mm. So mm. this, this for, for me at least, this almost had you know I, I really enjoyed watching this. I found it you know really beguiling. Mm. I thought it was a great little self-contained short film. But like our first pilot, was there anything compelling to keep me watching? Mm. I'm not sure. Perhaps I need to continue and now it's paradoxical for me because you've made me kind of appreciate it more and almost want to go back and revisit it but at the same time 
talking about it has made me realise too that exactly what worked about it was that episodic yeah, quality. So yeah. I'm, I'm not sure either if I want to go. Yeah. I think this could be, you know, you could study this and just enjoy this as, mm. a, as a completely self-contained short film. It's almost something like a, like a Twilight Zone episode where you have just that kind of concision a yes. focus yes that, uh, this would work completely well as a, as as a Twilight, Twilight Zone, Zone episode yeah. it, would be, it would be or, or a Black Mirror Black or a Black Mirror, Mirror episode yeah. it has this just a, yeah fantastic Black Mirror episode just the right amount of wonder but also just the right amount of the unsettling in yeah. it and great twist yeah. great fully realised character arc I think for that reason emotional catharsis <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm in or out yeah I'm the same I'm, maybe I'll watch a second episode out of curiosity yeah I'm on the fence about this one. I think it's I think it's beautifully done, but mm. it, it's not it's not compelling me to continue watching. Do we know how many episodes it is roughly? I'm I know curious. four episodes have already screened, but I'm not sure mm. how long the series will be or mm. whether multiple s- seasons are, are planned. Because almost from what you said, it, you said it would almost might even ruin it to flesh it out I further. Know. In the same way that like a great short story, I know the more you bring in, sometimes yeah, it could be a Ray Bradbury short story. Mm. Mm. I'm uh, in talking about it. I'm more intrigued and entranced by it, but I'm also less certain about whether I want to watch it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, that, this is, I think, yeah. the countervailing problem of our first one. That's reveal nothing or reveal everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, I'm. I don't know. I don't know where I stand. <laughs> I'm on the fence. Okay, on to our third show this week, and I must admit, I'm a, I'm a bit stumped. Um, to fully capture the plot of this one it's, yeah. it's it's almost like a couple of different shows in one um the show is red rose and it's a netflix horror series maybe it may, it's created by the clarkson twins michael and paul clarkson oh. um who twins twins yeah and and the main character ren davies is played by amelia clarkson who i'm wondering is maybe a family member of theirs or a relative or maybe oh. it's, it's a family production bit of nepotism bit of, bit of <laughs> nepo baby um I love Jamie Lee Curtis, but I feel like she's particularly triggered by the Nepo Baby stuff. Have you said there's a lot of stuff that she's been... Yeah. I mean, look, she she totally... I mean, I love her, so she's totally earned it. But yeah. I, yeah. I, I follow her on Facebook. There's been a lot of stuff about Nepo Babies <laughs> recently. Um, look, maybe the best way to handle this one is to talk it through in the order in which it occurs. Yeah, be yeah, my yeah. impression. So yeah. it starts with in a fairly traditional horror format with a mm. prelude in which a, a young woman arrives home to a house that is eerily deserted she thinks her mother's there her mother's not she goes from room to room the house itself is almost like a mobile phone like it's this huge structure in the middle of this empty black field the windows are all rectangular and when she gets you know upstairs her phone starts interfacing in strange ways so she sees images of herself on the phone static starts to go across the phone and the television like there's snow across the windows of the house and eventually her mother gets home and the girl jumps off the roof and she dies by suicide so it's this weird kind of social media horror space where Mm. the house and the phone are fused into this single it's like she's inside an occult phone so Mm. that's the opening there's a really really abrupt shift there um to what almost feels like a teen coming of age series yeah. or a teen comedy one of those 90s uh northern northern uh absolutely England type uh, absolutely so that that yeah. was exactly Post what i thought industrial so, decay narratives yeah so in many ways because i mean the the pilot is called it's grim up north it's grim up north <laughs> and yeah or as they call it up moors up moors, up moors. Yeah. so this to call that pre- prelude the first act right the second act is almost kind of like a Cool Britannia kind of hauntology. So yeah. you think of, you know, Cool Britannia, you know, 
in the 90s, Tony Blair, New Labour, all of a sudden it became cool to be British again yeah. and cool to be working class British and even cool to be northern British, like mm. a part of Britain that had always been kind of somewhat disavowed in popular culture. And this really captures that. So it's a very surreal setup. You graduate, But this is not set in the 90s. It's not. It feels like it's it not. is. A lot of the pop songs are And that's why 90s. I say it's kind of like a yeah. hauntology. So yeah. I was quite perplexed as to what time yes. period we're dealing with. It, and it's also, it's perplexing temporally and it's also somewhat perplexing spatially because mm. you have these, you know, a couple of girls, you know, just really kind of quite broadly characterised exactly in that kind of working class cinema tradition you're talking about yeah. in the 90s, you know, larking around and yet they're in the middle of this desolate moor yeah and a few more girls and boys join them and gradually you realize that this is a gathering or happening or an event Mm. that all the kids from a local school are holding to celebrate the end of school yeah so you don't see the town at all in this opening scene you just see this you know ethereal moor where they've all gathered to have a kind of rave and as you said the songs they play are all 90s classics so rhythm is a dancer Barbie Girl, um, Show Me Love. And it's almost like, you know, we talk about that hauntology, that sense of being haunted by lost futures. It is a kind of cool Britannia hauntology here. So it's kind of like seeing that collective spirit that animated Britain in the 90s kind of dissipating in the present. So you... and, Mm. And the more backdrop really lends itself to that. So on the one hand, it's... It's like a kind of a, a pastoral rave, you know. Mm. It's like the kind of raves that were held spontaneously, you know. Details given out at the last minute somewhere in the countryside, so police couldn't get there. But it also kind of feels like that collective British music spirit has now been relegated to some more notional or hypothetical or nostalgic space. Mm. So it's this very kind of haunting scene of these rugged moors, all these young, you know, teenagers dancing to these nineties classics, and this really really strong collective spirit mm. that, as, as you said, makes you think, is this set in the 90s? Mm. Like, that's how it mm. feels. Mm. Now it's like smartphones didn't yeah. exist in the 90s. Wait a second. Exactly. <laughs> and that's where the third act and the, the main part of the film, the series proper, comes in. So one of the girls who's the, the Ren character, who seems like a bit of an outcast, um, gets, you know, she wanders off from the pack into the middle of the moor, and all of a sudden all that collective energy gives way to this really tactile, oppressive, overwhelming silence. And she gets a message on her phone from an app called Red Rose, mm. which seems to know her innermost thoughts. And this Red Rose app turns out to be the app that we saw operating on the phone in the mm. initial scene. Mm. And like the, the initial girl, she looks at the phone and she sees herself reflected. Well, she's not exactly reflected in the phone, like a mirror. And the phone isn't exactly simply representing her in the present moment either. It kind of fractures her from the present moment. Mm. So what you see is this kind of 90s collective rave pastoral vibe give way to this kind of mobile phone, digital culture, self-fracturing isolation. Mm. So it's like it's like it... it, it it's like it's trying to map what's been lost in that old kind of, or old, that 90s kind of Britain. And this brings in the main part of the film in which this character, um, Wren, interacts with this Red Rose app, mm. which increasingly probes into her personal life, suggests she do destructive things. And at this point, actually, I think it becomes a lot more generic mm. and mm. almost a little bit... I mean, I think it becomes a, a real by-the-numbers YA kind of drama mm. with the phone almost 
standing in for the YA genre. Yeah. So the phone, the phone basically asks a series of... It's like if you were going to storyboard a generic YA drama <laughs> and you had like a series of questions you want to raise or a series of plot points you want to hit, the phone, the phone does it all. <laughs> the but phone is the first draft. The phone <laughs> is the first draft, exactly. But before that, this weird mixture of, you know, this real, you know, larrikin, laddie, larking, exuberant, collective, working-class, British 90s vibe, the, the fusion of that... Mm. with horror mm. is very eerie. I mean, you see it mm. a little bit in the 90s in people like Danny Boyle, like something like Shallow Grave or Train Spotting. Yeah. There are kind of elements of horror, but mm. this kind of pairs it with like almost like slasher horror. Yeah, yeah. So I thought... It's an unusual Frankenstein of a kind of construction, yeah. isn't it? It's like, it feels like a kind of almost uh, strange things hearkening back to, yep. you know, the recent past. Yes. But also this kind of uh, Black Mirror you know, warning, yes. prescient warning about future dangers of technology. And like, so it's, it's sort of split, isn't it? And like a lot of, yeah, and like a lot of Black Mirror stuff, I thought that was really heavy-handed. Yeah. But maybe it also captures what it's like to be a teenager now in Britain, which is you, you sense this kind of mythical British heyday. Because mm. I think, I don't think Britain has ever been as exuberantly confident as it was during those Tony oh, Blair absolutely. years. Oh, absolutely. Now it's not, sure. No, so there's that real sense of like, that was the golden time. Mm paired with a fairly, you know, if you're an adolescent, just your, your reactions to social media, positive or negative, are likely to be fairly generic because yeah. it's all around you. Yeah. So you have this really generic angst about social media, which I found pretty boring by the end, to be honest, <laughs> yeah. and, and to be a bit inept. Yeah. But that kind of second chunk of the film, that kind of haunted, rave, pastoral, you know, was, was so disarming and so unusual and to someone who lived through that era genuinely felt like seeing people in the present haunted by that era yeah maybe without having experienced it it reminded me a little bit remember we did like we talked about mrs marvel um or was miss marvel how you know you know how the marvel television universe now or marvel streaming universe is kind of bringing in more and more eccentric genre cues yes. and that one brought in the kind of hanif, hanif kuryashi like Indian subcontinent immigrant narrative. Yeah. Like yeah. The, the whole strand of British 90s TV shows and movies that were about the picaresque experience of being Indian or Pakistani living in London. The kind of shock I felt, not, not shock in a bad way, but the, you know, the wonderfully disarming feeling of seeing that mode paired with Marvel. Yes. I felt here at seeing this very familiar, you know, the full Monty brassed off yeah. among giants, these kind of, you know, you know, defiantly, proudly working-class British films, which were very different from, say, the kitchen sink dramas of the 70s, yeah. in that they were driven by joy rather than angst. Yeah. So very different to, say, Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner or If or This Sporting Life, these joy-driven working-class dramas of the 90s yeah. paired with slasher horror yes. and digital horror. <laughs> so the combination was so disarming. Yeah. But it's, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. No, not necessarily no, incongruous. No, 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 that I liked. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Or, or I thought... They were kind of in Congress in a really interesting way. Yeah. But then I thought the horror itself, as you know, it yeah. just became the like... The horror should be somewhat integrated into the landscape yes. or into the community. Well, that's the thing. We never see yeah. those moors really again, do yes, we, in a powerful yes. way. The Red Rose. I mean, it sounds like a kind of almost gothic, mm. you know, you hearkening know, back to, you know, those great gothic romances, mm. Victorian era. And the, the gothic, gothic romance And the gothicism and, of the know, north. Of, yes, So exactly, like the Brontes, the you know, the, the moors. Yeah, it's an inherently gothic space, but... For whatever reason, these the the scenes with her interacting with the the app tend to tend to take place in very generic spaces, yeah. and the and the instructions or commandments of the of the app are yeah like just drawn from the absolute yeah f 
absolute most most it's almost most like, standard of YA playbooks. It's almost like if you created a generic adolescent angst app, yes. this would be it. Or if you ask ChatGPT, create an angst app. Yeah, I also thought I mean, that this is described as a as a horror series, mm-hmm. and yet the most heinous, most horrific thing that happens here is someone getting with someone else's man. Yep, <laughs> and I think that horror thing too. Like a big part of that horror also comes from that northern that northern kind of mentality and that that sense yeah. of the north as being this kind of almost repressed part of the uk like mm. this kind of you know, north and south mm. so and it's funny i was actually going to suggest as a pilot club show uh, archive show this week a show called our friends in the north did you ever oh, see this never it was like, saw that, no. i remember watching it in the 90s it's this incredible drama set in the north of england and it was the first time I had a real... And I, I, looking at a list actually recently that like the best ever British TV shows by the BBC or something, it came in at 11th or 12th, so it's obviously okay. had an impact. And that was my first sense as a kid that the North was seen as this very mm. distinct region. I guess if you follow something like EPL, heavily like football, you get, you get a much stronger sense of that. Yeah. And then over the years, gradually, I got more of a sense of it. So, for example, you know I love the Pet Shop Boys. Um, one of them, Chris Lowe, comes from the North. Mm. And I used to actually follow a... A really great Facebook page called Get in the Sea, you know, which is about yeah, you know yeah. basically parroting the way in which like liberal newspapers in the UK deal with stuff. And one of them, a big motif in that on that Facebook page was the way in which the North is treated. But uh-huh. without living there, I think it's hard to get a full sense of how much the North is this kind of uncanny, almost disavowed space yeah. where everything that is you know, the South would want to forget or that the cosmopolitan it's like coastal elites mm. in the UK. So mm. I feel like everything that the South or the London or the cosmopolitan part of the, the United Kingdom would want to forget is kind of situated in the North, working mm. class, industrial, impoverished, mm. you know, history of class and labour disputes. Mm. And and it, I, but, it's, but it's not Scotland either. No, so. no. And I was reading that apparently the creators of this made it as, a, as an homage to Bolton, to, to Bolton their yeah. hometown. Yeah. And it does have a very, you know, lived-in feeling, but that those bring, scenes at least, at yeah. the beginning. I mean, just, but just what you were saying about the North and I guess that, that whole kind of circuitous route I just went on what, I, what I'm trying to get with it ultimately is that you lose a lot of the sense of the north in, in the in the main part of this right yeah. like it it doesn't feel like there's any way there's any necessity that it's taking place in the north yeah whereas that that scene in the moors up moors yes is so good so yeah that, that part 30 of, more minutes of the, the yeah. more the more based rave I mean the stuff <laughs> the slasher stuff could have been said in like Cincinnati yeah yeah, so, yeah the slasher stuff was very generic yeah yep. it's very generic disappointingly so because yeah. there is at heart a very interesting lived in mm. feel and I thought the characters were, were quite I interesting they, yep. were, they were quite well drawn and yep. unconventional looking and yeah. you know there was there was there was certainly something here yeah they were charismatic and, yeah. but just again in this in in the later part of it the the horror stuff it's almost like i wish this hadn't been a horror series at all but a slightly haunted slightly melancholy and slightly gothic account of just coming of age in the north well, it should have been a 90s set that's the show set, yeah. you know. or, or no, I, thought, I like the present stuff I, like, I like this sense of coming of age in the north with that sense that the 90s and that 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 kind of cool britannia new labor era has passed that sense mm. of being haunted by the past. It'd be like Sherwood, the way in which, I mean, Sherwood, there's yeah. that real sense of, like, that great era of, like, you know, strikes and class action and minor solidarity in the mm. 80s has kind of dissipated. I thought that was powerful. So I liked the present setting. Mm. I just thought the moment it verged into full horror mm. rather than this kind of... Was the moment it jumped the shark. It. Yeah, and just, it, just, it just lost what was distinctive. So, look, I, I think I'm an out just because although I found that set second part of it incredibly engaging the rest of it i found pretty boring 
Yeah. And yeah. and a bit incompetent. Yeah. And you know, with all the best intentions in the world behind it, I just I wasn't engaged. Yeah. Maybe I'm not the demographic. No, look, it's eminently watchable, but outside of the YA marketplace, it's it's probably not really worth your time. It's hitting some pretty generic YA beats by the end, isn't it? And look, yes. if I hear that, you know, because I know a few people who are watching it, um, if I hear that that, you know, that ravey northern vibe comes back into it, I mean mm. that. Mm. That, I was watching this late at night and yeah. the first bit the slasher bit I was like oh this is okay and then that, that bit with the moor just yeah. a disorientation of it yeah. I really sat up and I was really engaged and then I just sank back in so yeah. if, if it comes back to that yeah maybe I'm an in yeah. but otherwise more I'm, more I'm an out yeah you're more more exactly okay on to our archive corner mm. for this week you've had a bit of a trend recently of doing quite contemporary archive choices that's right that's right filling in some gaps worth, worth reminding our listeners that archive can be anything before the last week that's it right it can be 50 years ago it can be anything before last week. that's right it can often be some you know series that we might have overlooked for yep. one reason or another partly because of maybe a possible in this case aversion to YA and and yeah but anything before last Wednesday <laughs> Ooh, it's fine but yeah and, and sometimes as we said last time you know it is just a practical thing so you were away over Chris over yeah. Chris there was there were quite a few big shows that we missed with the last lockdown I don't think yeah. we ever did Severance for example no, so some really no. big shows that we've never done just because no. of pandemic stuff as yeah. well because we haven't got the uh, the technical know how to do it remotely <laughs> we haven't got to that point yet well anyway, okay. this is uh, Wednesday mm. is I think one of those shows that started out uh, with a bit of a you know a bit of publicity but this became a real sleeper hit and, Absolutely. and a huge huge global hit for Netflix a bit I like think, Stranger Things I think this became their, their at least in the top five most watched mm. series in Netflix history mm. So it became enormously popular. I think it became a series that we had to grapple with. So Wednesday is a is the latest adaptation of um, Charles Adams' famous mm. famous cartoon family, Adams Family. I'm not sure whether you know much about the history of the Adams Family. I do. So it started as a cartoon, didn't it? Started as a cartoon, published in the New Yorker. It's been published over a 50 year period from 1938. Mm. So it has a very old lineage. Um, it's been adapted into a whole bunch of different media. It's, uh, video games, comic books. Like the ultimate intermedial text. That's right. Intermedial that's story. Right. Music, music and so forth. Um, it's an interesting series of uh, inspirations as well. Obviously, mm. they're an inversion of the conventional American mm. nuclear family. They're, mm. they're ghoulish and they're macabre. Mm. Um, but that's always... They're kooky. That's right. They're spooky. I used to love the Adams Family growing up. Really? I really liked it. 60 series. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It was often on after school on TV. Yes, yes. I was a big fan. Of course, of course. But, you know, however, however, you know, uh, creepy they are, they always have, you know, integrated by these sort of uh, brought together by by weirdly sentimental values Mm. that that underlie um, their relationship. Um, It first came to TV in 1964. Mm -hmm. So that was probably the TV series that you were were exposed to. And that was the first time the the Adams Family members were actually named. Mm. Mm. Okay, that I didn't Mm. know. Interesting. Mm. So since then, um, we've had a whole bunch of different adaptations. I mean, there was a, you know, famously the the 90s movies. Mm. Were you a fan of the 90s movies? I was, I loved them. Yeah, I remember because the first one was just the Adams Family. And the, the second Adams Family, that's Adam, right, nineteen ninety one, and then Adams Family Values. Adams Family I, Values. I remember yes. at the time as a kid, I I I never. I was a pretty young kid then. 
I'd never heard the phrase family values. Mm. So I didn't really understand the name of the sequel. I thought maybe it was like a discount. This is, this is the way my mind worked as a kid. I thought it was maybe a discount version of the original film. So mm. when I saw posters for Adam Family's value, Adam Adam's Family Values, I thought well, maybe they're just re-releasing the original film, but it's cheaper. Yes, because it's it's values <laughs> like the val- so I had no sense. I mean, I ended up seeing it and realizing it was a sequel, but I had no sense. And even when I saw the sequel, I was like, oh, I, why did they just act like it was a cheaper value version of the first? Yeah, so I had yeah, no sense. Okay, I really love Christina yeah. Ritchie. Well, I guess as a that kid. was that was the, the pinnacle of Family Values movement. It wasn't is. It? Yeah, so it was a nice little. Nice little irony so there. So it's like Angelica Houston, Raul Julia. Yes, Raul Julia, yeah. Christina yep. Ritchie. Yep. Oh. Christopher Lloyd as Lurch? Who was Lurch? I can't remember yeah. who was Lurch. Uh, for some reason in my mind, I always assumed that these were directed by Tim Burton. Yeah, no. Bar- Barry Sonnenfeld. Barry Sonnenfeld. Yeah. So there is something, I think, appropriate in bringing Tim Burton yeah. back into the fold as, as he said, how did he not direct these? I know. It was so, so up his alley. Mm. Were you aware that there was a 1998 film as well? Adam's Family Reunion. No. No, I never saw that one. <laughs> Even more strange, there have been two recent animated Adam's Family movies, 2019 really? and 2021. I had, I had no the idea Adam's about Family, that. The Adam's Family 2. Wow. Oh, 3D animation, like, like Pixar-style animation? It, it, yes, it may well be. Oh, okay. They, yeah. So Was Christina Ritchie and Angelica Houston in the reunion one as well? I... I um, it was straight to video. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so uh, Gomez wow. was played by Tim Curry. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that, that's what I've got. Mm. So completely different. Interesting. Yeah, so look, we've seen we've seen many, 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 many incarnations of the Adams Family, but this newest one is probably most notable for the fact that we actually are estranged from the family. Mm. So Wednesday is more of a coming-of-age story, which is actually situated outside of the family home. Mm. So at the beginning of the the, uh, the the pilot of Wednesday, we meet our new Wednesday Adams, played by Jenny Jenna Ortega, Ortega yeah. who's also, I believe, the, the star of the most recent Scream uh, film mm. series. And she is tormenting various bullies at her, her local high school. And as a result, mm. she's exiled to Morticia's alma mater mm. in, I believe, looks like upstate New York. or It looks like, like regional cozy Tim Burton New England yes yeah like just (laughs) classic Tim Burton Sleepy Hollow yes yes that's right (laughs) Sleepy Hollow that's right so it is a boarding school so she is she is taken in as a boarder we meet the headmistress played by Gwendolyn Christie Uh, we meet her counsellor who's actually played by Christina Ritchie a nice little throwback to I I just love Christina Ritchie she was she was a real a real stalwart of those those kind of gothic 90s adaptations Casper Casper Adam's family yeah the, she's in Mermaids. That's kind of it's not gothic, but it's kind yeah, of it's adult. Jason, she she Jason. was often played a kid in films that were like kid friendly, but had an adult element to yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and and her fair her, her cast of of kooky kooky uh, schoolmates, spooky and kooky. Yes, yeah. So we we get a nice little tour of the school, mm. beginning from her roommate uh, of the different social uh, classes, mm. different social types at this mm. school. A little bit like Hogwarts. Well, <laughs> tiny bit like Hogwarts. That was what I was going to say. A little bit like Hogwarts at times. <laughs> that was what I was going to say. So, the the school that she is, is she's inducted to is probably as close as you could get to Hogwarts yep. without directly ripping yep. off the IP. Yep, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yep. That's not to say it's not effective in its own way, but it's it is it is clearly you know uh, you know um, and well it bears so much it you know 
uh, you know, I mean, weight I mean, to, I mean, to the Harry Potter I th- series. I think yeah. there was some. There's definitely some stuff that's really unique to this year. Look, first thing I thought, I found it really cozy. I really yeah. enjoyed it. And there's there's some stuff which we'll come to which is really unique. But if you're going to do a Harry Potter plus Riverdale plus Gilmore Girls mashup, <laughs> this is probably what it be. I mean. It was, like the the school has got a little town nearby called um, the school's called Nevermore yes. and the town is called I forget there's a town nearby and I was like oh, this feels like Gilmore Girls I'm like oh yeah it's the Gilmore Girls set yeah, <laughs> like it's exactly yeah. the same oh, really? set okay. it's, 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 it's Jericho Jericho so Jericho yeah. is, is it's that it's it's that generic Hollywood town square set so it's, the gazebo gives it away so they use it in Gilmore Girls they use it in the Seinfeld finale ah. but like the town is Gilmore Girls the social dynamics are Riverdale and the school is Hogwarts. Hogwarts, yeah. But I still think it's really cosy. And yes. there's, there's some stuff I think really works in it too. Yes, yes. I think in a way that uh, you create a sort of hybrid. Mm. When you mash up all these genres, you yep. pay homage to some, you mm. steal, you appropriate. Mm. It creates this pastiche effect, but does it does it work as its self-contained series? And I think this actually does. I think it's got a really, as, it's got a really a strong sense of place and atmosphere. It's got verve, this yep. pilot. It's got momentum and it's, got, it's yeah. well-paced. I also thought it was like... It is. It does hit a lot of generic YA cues, but mm. it's almost like a funny commentary on YA cues at some point mm. too. So it's like the whole thing. So you, you've got the school. The school is a school for outcasts, for mm. freaks, mm. Um, and there's this kind of real tension between the freaks at the school and the normies in the town. Mm. But the thing is, we live in a YA world now where every YA book is about freaks. Mm. You know, like why freaks are the new normies. Mm. Like everyone's a vampire, everyone is a werewolf, everyone is magic, everyone's gothic, everyone's got power. So it's almost like the kind of joke of the series is you've got this freaks normies division, but the freaks are normies too. So yeah. it's a great bit where yeah, the way it's set up is that Wednesday's roommate is a normie. You know, yeah. when Wednesday gets there, the roommate's got everything coloured in you know fluorescent hues, and it's all kind of bright and jolly. And Wednesday right away makes sure that her side of the room is dark, is gothic, and yet this normie she shares a room with also has her own supernatural powers. And when the normie sees um, Thing, the disembodied yeah. hand, oh, she barely flinches. Yeah. So that there's like. There's like this distinction between freaks and normies at some level, but no one's ever quite as nonplussed by Wednesday as they would have been like twenty or thirty years yeah, ago. So absolutely. So yeah, it's a lot of the a lot of the, the humour here is that her trying to scandalise people yep. and everyone in this school just yeah you know, staring straight face back at her. Yep, and it's it's subtle, right? Like it's not like she's entirely in Congress because people you know people still have a slight start when she talks to them, but she's not genuinely shocking anymore. No. But she's not kind of banal. So it's, it's, it's really delicately done. Yeah. yeah but yeah, it's, yeah. She, she, it's like she's kind of discovering she's a little bit normie yes. as well in some ways. Yes, that's right. That's right. And a lot of the, the jokes here do do land. Mm. It's quite a funny show. Yeah, yeah. And her interactions, you know, she's, she's just so ruthlessly cynical and her and, cynicism is, is, is not met with the same with the same sort of response that she would likely have invited, like, like you 20 said. years ago. Well, yeah. there's something that's interesting. Like, I think this is one of the reasons, because obviously the adolescent fan base are driving it. Mm. And I think this is one of the reasons why she must be so appealing to people of a certain age and generation. Like, on the one hand, she is all deadpan detachment, right? Mm. Like, she, she's got a kind of deadpan detachment you, you can't really pull off anymore in a world of social media, right? No. Like, it's something you associate with that 90s cynicism, like Daria. Yes. So, yes. on the one hand, she's deadpan and she's very anti-social media. Yes. She doesn't need it. But at the same time, everyone's always talking about her. 
she kind of basically talks in memes or yeah. in Instagram captions. You know, yeah. everything she says could be a caption. Yeah. And the character herself has become viral due to things like the dance that became massive on TikTok. So it's almost like Wednesday represents this fantasy for adolescents of being totally self-contained <laughs> and totally connected at the same time. Do you know what I mean? It's good. Like the very fact that she... Because I was thinking it's so strange, the tension. It, like she withdraws completely. Like she's like... As an adolescent, she's like an emblem of someone who does not need social media yeah. and does not need to be connected to other people. Yeah. And yet that very fact means that she she goes viral. Yes. You know, yes. in the show and off the show. So yes. I can see how if I was a teenager now, you'd want to aspire to her. It's like, well, here's somebody who doesn't need any kind of mediation, but for that very reason, everyone's always talking about her. Yeah. Every, everything's always and even the way she talks is like they're funny. It's like it's like they're really dark or edgy Instagram captions brought to life. Yes, yeah, so true. I can kind of see why she's appealing, and even though I'm not of that generation, I kind of found that it it, it comic it comic as well, like yeah, that kind yeah. of alternation, that yes, dynamic. Yes. And and despite the fact that she yeah you know, she renounces all the the blandishments yeah. of the society. Yeah. People are constantly yes. coveting her, wanting to be connected to her. Yes, including young men. Yep. yep. So that, despite the fact that she utterly, you know, repels yep. uh, male ad- affection yeah, and yeah. attraction, there are, there are multiple suitors already yeah. emerging I from mean, the woodwork. Basically, like you know, people say something to her, like you know, you should get on Instagram. I would only get on Instagram to show a dead rat or something like yeah. that. You should get a boyfriend. The only boy I like is one with his head cut off with a guillotine, and yet all the most handsome and attractive people <laughs> in the town flock to her. So it's like that fantasy of like of being so self-sufficient, yeah. you know, but like, yeah, everyone everyone is fascinated by you as well. Yes, which is, yes, Which yes. is kind of what, that's like the fantasy of social media, right? Like the fantasy of Instagram is that you don't need these followers. Yes. You're completely indifferent to them. You're just living your own self-contained life and they're the ones who happen to be spying on you yes. rather than you sharing your life with yes, them. So yes. I think there's certainly... It's uh, funny, like... Yeah, this. I guess teenagers with this character can sort of can, you know, have their, you know... Uh, have yeah, their cake and eat it too. That's what it's going for. Yeah. It's like yeah. you, you can you can identify with her. It's just disaffected, yeah. alienated teen. Yeah. But you can also kind of laugh at her foibles it's, it's, you know, it, as she as she is actually you know integrated into the community yeah. of this school. It's it's like she's an insider outsider or exactly. an outsider insider. Exactly. It's like if I was a teenager, I can imagine myself completely you know at, at certain times in my adolescent life completely withdrawing from social media. Mm. But kind of wanting people to know that I was doing it. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like performatively withdrawing. Performatively <laughs> withdrawing, and and so she, yeah, yeah, she kind of maybe she captures a world yeah. where I, yeah. nothing is even withdrawing from social media is a form of social media. Yes, and the main plot point in the episode is her grudgingly making contact with one of the guys, you know, one of the many suitors, yes. handsome suitors from the town, who um. He says, well, I thought you were never on social media. And she's like, desperate times call for desperate measures. But something like that, you know, but like it's... Yeah. I think there's also that sense that, you know, teen, you know teens may well feel disaffected and alienated. Yep. But that trope and that, that, that those characteristics, that behaviour is so tapped out, so yep. exhausted. Yep. That well, the freak, the freak. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. All we can do is kind of ironise it or parody it. But yeah, and also I just I just feel like like in a world where everything is available online where there's media everywhere just that being that standalone daria kind of character just doesn't work in mm, the same way mm, like mm. where everyone's already connected and where you're already connected whatever you do mm. it's like there's a weird false consciousness in pretending to stand apart yes. it's like people who make a big point about not being on facebook or on social media it's like well that's still a statement now yeah in the world we live, like in 2007 not being on facebook was you know a statement mm. now like you know that actually was a kind of exemption mm. but now not being on facebook or not being on instagram or not being on tiktok well it's just like being on it it's a different way of branding yourself mm. so it's like 
yeah, in the world of niche media, not being on media doesn't mean much mm. because it, a, that in itself is a niche. But mm. in the area of mass media in the 90s, withholding from media and withholding from people felt like more. So That's it's, true. It's like, it's like there's something about that goth, you know, withdrawal that's that feels kind of silly mm. or just doesn't ramify and what you're saying is quite interesting in the sense that you know what is wendy's project what is her goal her goal is to become a novelist a mystery novelist yep. a gruesome uh you mm. know toe curling mm. uh mystery novelist it's it's a personal branding everything she's doing is, bra- absolutely. is branding personal well, branding absolutely it's just a different medium absolutely so yeah exactly <laughs> so, so the more that she withdraws the more people are kind of entranced by her brand yes and of course it's going to be that brand that gets her the guy that gets her the, the, the you know admiration of her teachers that gets her the celebrity so perhaps it, it conveys something about how you know behavior or one's identity as a brand now is increasing the brandification of teenage identity and this is something i feel like you know you talk about class and stuff and how it operates across society and capitalism like capital i feel like there's something to be said about the way in which those who brand themselves versus those who don't want to or can't want to like the ability to brand yourself or the tendency to brand yourself is a kind of class marker Mm. and so it's almost like here although she's the outcast she's also kind of the queen bee Mm. in the sense that her branding is so insatiable yeah. well she's so the influencer and over, she's the influencer par, par excellence exactly so think about an influencer what is an influencer other than someone who's, whose identity is their mm. brand exactly and who there's just no there's a complete collapse between their personal and professional lives and the fantasy of the influencer is that they that you need them more than they need you yeah with of course they're completely dependent on you yes so yeah there's just something about that that gives it this kind of wry like it's like it's like she's slightly ridiculous, but she's also... She's like an influencer. Like, yes. she's slightly ridiculous, but she's also compelling. She's kind of annoying, but she's also one of us. Yes. It just... It doesn't It doesn't take her too seriously, but it also doesn't completely parody her. Mm. It just keeps her in this really slippery space that all of us inhabit. And it's almost like the show says to us, even if you don't like her in the show, that's still part of your brand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, still, that's, still, that's still the way you're advertising yourself. True. The fact that we didn't watch it initially doesn't mean that we're somehow edgy or above it that was just our brand all along true so true you've got to engage with it in some way yeah but look i think it's i think it's a, a very charismatic central it performance is. the only the only qualm i have and i know this is it's 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 not this kind of show i do like her interactions with the other adams family like i hope we yeah. get a little bit more of those so it's yeah. got um, well, it's a guest starring i know uh it's yeah, Kath, Catherine, Zeta Catherine Jones Zeta Jones and uh louis guzman louis guzman i thought oh perhaps perhaps not perhaps yeah. maybe they'll come back i but just yeah. there and I, even even they're part of the same pattern. So everything that Catherine Zeta-Jones says is kind of like, on the one hand, it's gothic, but on the other hand, it's just completely basic. So she yeah. just says what any generic person would say in a series, except the opposite. Like, oh, it looks like it's going to rain today. What beautiful weather. So <laughs> she's like a completely generic character, yeah. even in her edginess. Yes. And she's, it's funny for that. Like, So look, and I mean, I remember too in the original series and the show, um, thing was a little bit creepy. Like the hand was just a little bit creepy. Mm. I thought it was funny, but also a bit creepy. Whereas here, it's just completely domesticated. Yeah. So, look, I I liked it. It was awry, and I, I I thought that it had that. I mean, if you think about what makes Tim Burton distinctive, it is that capacity to both acknowledge the way in which the gothic has been domesticated, mm. but still make it a bit eerie, mm. like a kind of a domesticated gothic. That's what mm. Edward Scissorhands mm. is, mm. and that domesticated gothic, which still almost becomes a little bit more gothic for being domesticated. Yeah, yeah. That, I think, really shines yeah. through here. I can see that yeah. Tim Burton touch. So yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of mediated gothic. Yeah, it is. You know, yeah. like a 50s-style yeah. gothic aesthetic that nonetheless, as artificial as its parameters are, yeah. there's still something that 
at its outer edges gestures towards something that's yeah. a little bit beyond. Or it's like by acknowledging that it's been domesticated and contained, that makes it strange in a different kind of way. Mm. Instead of it being something out there, it's something mm. in here. Mm. So, look, it's funny. Like, when I started first started watching the first five or ten minutes, I was like, oh, is this going to be a bit generic? But by the end, I was like, I am utterly charmed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm completely in. Yeah. I Take yeah. me to Nevermore. Take me to Jericho. Take me to Wednesday's World. And, and at first, I was like, is she going to be annoying? But then by the end, I was like, oh, she is. But also, she's all of us. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, she's, yeah. she's everyone. So, yeah. It, it was good. I'm an yeah. in. I, I was just thinking, how on earth has Tim Burton not touched the Adams family? I know. What, yeah. What's and going on? Jenny Ortega is such a Tim Burton actress. Yes. Jenny Ortega. Absolutely. Like it, it is completely cut from the same yeah. cloth as like yeah. Christina, Christina Ritchie, Winona Ryder, that kind of the brooding, kind of pallid, kind of goth brunette. Absolutely. Basically. Absolutely. No, director well paired with material. It was great. It was great. I thought. So, yeah, look, I'm. I'm, a, I'm Although I acknowledge I'm not the, the demographic mm. for this, I'm attentive in. Yeah, it was enjoyable. I thought it was great. Anyway, my suggestion for next week, um, we've had um, a couple of quite recent shows mm. for our Archive Corner, so I thought I'd do something that's a little bit older, mm. but actually is relevant as well. So I'm going to do the first ever part of Party Down. Oh, so this is a series, those who don't know, it's, it's one of those great downbeat, depressive workplace comedies that came out in the late 2000s. I think the first, the pilot was 2009, 2008. Mm. Um, I actually watched it again recently. The whole thing is about a party, a catering company, and, they, mm. and each episode is them at a different event. It had two seasons in the late 2000s. This is a show that I completely associate with DVDs rather than streaming. Mm. Never watch it on streaming. But the show's been renewed, and it's the third season's out now. I know. Some... 12, 13 years later. And it's, you know, although what we do is pilots, it, it, what we do is pilots, sometimes when a show is renewed years after the fact, I feel a kind of hankering to do the pilot of the, of the new iteration. Yeah. But it's not technically in our purview. No. So doing the original pilot, I think, is great to contextualise it. So it's got it's great cast. So it's like Adam Scott, Martin Starr, Jane Lynch, Megan Mullally. Like, there's a lot of really great... And guest actors in each episode yeah. as well. This is one I've, I've always wanted to, yeah. to visit. I've never seen it before. It was funny what we'll talk about next week, but just rewatching the pilot, it just took me back to just such a nostalgia for that kind of indie, downbeat, naughty style. So, mm. yeah, I mean, the third season has just dropped, but we're going to do the first season and just go back to where it all began in yeah, late 2000. So next week, party down. Love it. Cool. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>